Hi, everyone. It's Andy Robbins again, and uh, I'm really delighted to bring back Dr. Daniel Stock, who uh, spoke with us last time. It was one of the most listened to uh, podcasts that we've done in a long time. So people uh, obviously enjoyed Dr. Dan, and so I wanted to bring him back for another discussion, this time on something that I'm finding is not really widely known among my clientele, and that's something called chronic inflammatory response syndrome, or SIRS. So that'll be the topic of today. But before I go any further, let me allow Dr. Stock to introduce himself and tell the audience a little bit about what he does and his background, and then we'll get going on this topic. Um, hi, everybody. Uh, I'm Dan Stock, and I'm a geek. Um, <laughs> that's, that's my calling card. I'm a functional family medicine physician. Uh, so I handle all the chronic diseases that a family doctor does, but I just do them with curative intent. And that's part of what led me to chronic inflammatory response syndrome, since uh, I'm becoming more and more convinced as my experience and my study goes on that this is the underlying of what we call aging, is that everybody eventually ends up in chronic inflammatory response syndrome. Um, since most people don't want to have that aging thing happen, if you're going to reverse chronic disease, a lot of that has to do with stopping the chronic inflammatory response syndrome, if that's a component of their disease process. That's how I got where I'm at. So you're a medical doctor. What's your background training? Um, I did my internship at St. Vincent's here in uh, preliminary internal medicine, which is the, and uh, that's kind of the, geez, I don't know what I want to do, but I'm going to study everything uh, first year of training and then went off into primary care. So I've been a family doctor forever after finishing my medical degree. Um, but I think I'd, most of my colleagues consider me tediously boring because I uh, like biochemistry. I used to do bench uh, science research, as a matter of fact, uh, because I'm just like I say, I, I bore people for a living um, because biochemistry is kind of my first love. It's, it's, I'm, I, I tell people I'm that guy you hate because I not only uh, learned the Krebs cycle, I still know it and I like it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, I remember when I first started with Metagenics, uh, one of the very first uh, projects I had to do was uh, learn uh, mitochondrial synthesis and uh, the, the Krebs cycle. And so I, I learned it pretty well, not nearly as well as someone like yourself or others who have gone through medical school, but I, I was uh, proficient in discussing the Krebs cycle. And I remember the very first time that I even brought up the Krebs cycle with some of your colleagues, their eyes glazed over and they're like, oh my gosh, you got to be kidding me, the Krebs cycle. So someone who actually does memorize it and still remembers it today, that's pretty amazing because I know that. I actually, uh, during my internship, I had one of my residents, uh, when I told him that I thought the Krebs cycle was fun and I enjoyed it so much, I still remembered all the chemical structures. He said, no, you don't. So actually he made me write them all down. I ran through all the chemical structures. He stopped and looked at me and said, I'm going to get you a psych referral. <laughs> 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 oh, my goodness. Well, it's doctors like you that uh, definitely uh, blaze the new trails in terms of our understanding of things like what we're going to be talking about today, which is chronic inflammatory response syndrome. But I would like just for my own edification here, just to get to know you a little bit better, what led you into functional medicine away from your traditional training? I uh, got sick, like most of us, and uh, went to the, the traditional route and started getting just nonsensical answers. Uh, I, my favorite one, uh, 
when I was diagnosed, I think it was the age of 36 with a testosterone level was less than an 85 year old man. I was referred to an endocrinologist who said, oh, well, the reason your testosterone is so low is because of your age. <laughs> I, was, I was like, okay, wait a minute, it's lower than 85 year old guy, I'm 36. How's that gonna work? Um, and about that time I said, well, okay, look, what I've always been really good at is biochemistry. So I'm gonna start reading and studying on my own. And then I found out that there were people who were doing this, uh, hey, look, um, depression doesn't come from Prozac deficiency. There's some other biochemistry involved here. And then people were digging deeper into the biochemistry. And well, hey, that plays right into my wheelhouse. So next thing you know, I'm off reading all of this stuff that the traditional medicine uh, people don't want to study. And uh, it made me get better. Um, in fact, I'm just finishing off my chronic inflammatory response syndrome treatment regimen right now. Um, with marked improvements in return of function um, to what they were before I got sick. But that's how I got there. I got sick and nobody else could answer it. So, okay, I'm going to go looking for other people who can and found functional doctors and then learn from many of them. And uh, the best of them know chronic inflammatory response syndrome. I've heard similar stories from a lot of the people that I've called on over the years who have gone from a more conventional medical training into a more integrative style of practice. And that's many of their stories as well. They got sick and they realized that modern medicine in the way that it's being practiced didn't have the answers for their particular problem. And so they did like you and began studying and were able to get themselves to a place of healing and functionality through more natural, uh, less invasive means. And here we are. So with that introduction in mind, I want you to hit the ground running here and uh, describe to our audience, what is SIRS? What is chronic inflammatory response syndrome? Why should this be on our radar and how does it impact people and what are the implications of it? So first of all, the basics of inflammation for people, whenever a cell becomes injured in the body, it starts making these things called inflammatory cytokines, which is the way it tells the tissue around it, the immune system in the brain, the nature of its injury, what the immune system, the local tissue in the brain need to do to protect themselves and what they need to do to solve the problem. And there are many different patterns of inflammatory cytokines that tissue can release based upon their injury. So the cytokines, if I punch you in the nose are different than the cytokines if you get a staph infection in your left thumb. Um, particularly what happens in chronic inflammatory response syndrome is that you trigger the mechanism that your body uses to defeat what's called an intracellular pathogen. So intracellular pathogens are germs that get inside and they hijack your own cells machinery. They don't live in between the cells, they live inside of your cells and they use your cells machinery. We have this very clever mechanism to make them so they don't do very well. And that we can trigger uh, this, the, a brain response to stop making two particular hormones. Um, so for those of you who don't know about the hypothalamus of the brain, it's the, one of the most ancient parts of the brain that regulates metabolism throughout your body. It actually determines whether you're going to burn mostly fat or mostly carbohydrate, regulates sleep cycles and all of that. And one of the things it regulates is inflammation responses. So when cells start to give the inflammatory cytokine pattern that indicates they have a intracellular pathogen, if the brain sees that signal become high enough, then it will quit making two hormones called vasoactive intestinal peptide or VIP and one called melanocyte stimulating hormone or MSH. Um, VIP is what gives the, the cells permission to run the protein making machinery of the cell. 
Without it, the protein making machinery drops to about half speed. Um, people need to know that what makes a pancreas cell a pancreas cell is that it makes pancreas cell proteins. What mm -hmm. makes a nerve cell a nerve cell is it makes nerve cell proteins. So you basically take the metabolism of every tissue in the body and drop it in half when the VIP level drops. MSH, on the other hand, controls inflammatory responses. So if I punch you in the nose when your MSH level is high, you will make less cytokines than if I punch you in the nose when your MSH level is low. And the way these two things are supposed to work, I'll use influenza as the case of this. Uh, you get a virus infection in your lung cells. They start sending out the inflammatory cytokine pattern of an intracellular pathogen. And the brain says, okay, I'm going to quit making MSH because that'll let all the other cells of the body. Um, so they go on hair trigger so that they can be very easy to make to protect themselves um, by doing what we call cell danger response. When the cell thinks it's in danger, it triggers a set of metabolism called cell danger response. That's a protective mechanism. And with MSH being low, cells go right to the edge of MSH, uh, of cell danger response and are easy to throw into that. And the brain also quits making VIP with the idea being that, daggone it, we're gonna slow this metabolism down so the little critter can't grow so fast. And then our immune system starts to react and do what it's supposed to do. And because the uh, virus spread has been slowed down and all the cells have gone into this protect themselves mode, it's able to kill off the influenza. And then within a few days, we start to feel better. And that achy fatigue brain fog feeling we get when we get the cold or influenza starts to go away and we get well. Um, but what happens in chronic inflammatory response syndrome is that the cells of the hypothalamus that make MSH and VIP, they also go into metabolic stasis and they also become very sensitive to inflammation. And these cells can store about two or three weeks of MSH and VIP. But if the inflammatory process gets triggered and goes on longer than that, they run out of VIP and MSH and now they can't reboot the system. And so now your metabolism is stuck at half speed for the remainder of your life until somebody does something to bring it back out of that. Mm -hmm. um, basically, you're stuck in influenza mode the remainder of your life. Wow. Um, and so in treating VIP or the treating uh, SIRS, what people have to understand is because it's an inflammatory cytokine production that actually drives this process to begin in the first place, you have to do everything you can to get rid of the inflammation so when I see somebody who says, well, you know, I don't understand, you know, you tell me I have to eat really, really, really well now, but you know, I used to be, I eat crappy and I felt okay. It's like, yeah, but you weren't in SIRS then. Now you can't eat inflammatory food or I can't make this go away again, guy. Mm -hmm. um, and then once you've got this away, you've got the inflammation under control, uh, then you have to actually give them VIP back for a period of time so that they can metabolically get back to normal. That also, because when cells aren't metabolizing normal, they secrete cytokines just for that reason. And you have to do this for a while until all the metabolism returns to normal. And then you can slowly wean off the VIP. The brain will make its own VIP now because it's had a chance to recover and the person's executed. Um, hmm. There's actually been two cases of Alzheimer's that were caused by this um, SIRS process. Um, where the case has been published where these people had shrunken hippocampi on their brain MRIs and they had positive Florbetapyr scans, uh, were treated with a SIRS protocol ending with VIP. Not only did they recover all of their memory, but when we repeated their MRI, they had regrown the volume of their hippocampus and had cleared out their Florbetapyr scans. Um, so yeah, to kind of indicate the power of what this chronic inflammatory response syndrome, 
when you think about it, because it takes down the metabolism of all parts of the body, there's just about no chronic disease that can't have SIRS as part of its generation. And in fact, there's a lot of research being done right now, or I should say a lot of experience trying to work on things like Parkinson's disease um, as a presentation of SIRS. Um, okay. But it's important to notice that if you look biochemically, what we notice these people, the MSH level drops first. And because now everything's just really hair trigger and people make a lot of inflammatory cytokines, they get into a very inflamed state that's perpetuated. Um, and, and at this point, they won't be normal, even if you correct all of their diet, get all their nutritional repletion, give them vitamin D and all of that, they still won't go back to normal. Um, it, uh, that's kind of the hallmark people need to know about SIRS, is that everything's twice as inflammatory as it used to be. So what leads to SIRS? I mean, is there one particular common denominator of people that have this that leads to this syndrome? Um, almost all of them have some mechanism of generating biotoxin-mediated illness, uh, most commonly through an infected root canal tooth or some kind of chronic infection or by living in a building which exposes them to biotoxins, which is probably the most common one. We also see it from people who have uh, chronic Lyme infections, but uh, that's, that's probably the other common infectious source that does it. Um, but it's almost always got either an infectious source or something that mimics an infection like a biotoxin generating building okay. um, because that, that generates the same response. Um, many of the pathogens like staphylococci that make us get sick, they do so by releasing biotoxins. So any source of biotoxins and your body starts getting the idea, I've got an infection somewhere, no matter, even if there's no bugs involved, if it gets a biotoxin, it interprets it's got an infectious problem going on. I see. Okay. So then a uh, sick building syndrome, uh, mold, you said Lyme? Lyme and root canal teeth are probably the other ones that I see. Okay. Um, I suspect, I don't think we have any research that proves, but I suspect if you have a large number of amalgam fillings, you can probably get the same thing, um, or at least it will contribute to that because uh, Amalgam fillings don't seal the tooth, and a tooth is basically a bone with a waterproofing cap of enamel on it so it can live in your mouth without letting cooties in. But amalgam fillings don't seal the tooth, and if you have a lot of very large amalgam fillings, my suspicion is that enough of the biotoxins seep around the filling into the tooth so that the tooth thinks it's chronically infected and will signal things the same. Hmm. Um, I've seen people who had a lot of amalgam fillings removed, and we've always blamed that on heavy metals, which honestly, I don't think explains the data very well. I think the better explanation isn't that you're absorbing heavy metals from the filling. I think it's that the filling is basically an open wound in a, in a bone and uh, leads to a chronic infection. Or so a chronic no infection. matter what kind of material you put in the filling is what you're saying. It doesn't necessarily have to be uh, mercury amalgam filling to cause this response. It could be porcelain. Is that what you're saying? Um, I'm going to defer to my dentist friends here, but what they tell me is if you use composite fillings, this chemically binds to the dentin and enamel of the tooth and chemically seals the tooth. Uh, the problem is primarily to the amalgam fillings because the amalgam fillings don't chemically bond to the tooth. They're just a space occupying lesion. Whereas the composite fillings actually chemically bind to the tooth material and waterproof it and seal it back up again. And now the biotoxins that live in your mouth don't get into you. It's important for people to know that we all make biotoxins all day long. The, the, the good bugs that we need living in our mouth and our intestine make their own biotoxins. But they, the way they get along with this is they say, hey, 
it's your job to seal yourself up and not let my biotoxins get into you. Um, the problem is when you start breaking those seals with like leaky gut or with amalgam fillings that you actually kind of don't get to get along with your own flora anymore. Hmm. Um, so then uh, SIRS presents itself as uh, brain fog or even literal brain degeneration in the case of a, an Alzheimer's patient to some degree. Could we say fibromyalgia kind of symptoms, uh, maybe arthritis, uh, joint types of inflammatory issues? Uh, I can tell you that the, the usual symptoms that are conserved in all presentation of SIRS is fatigue. Okay. That's the major one is, geez, I just don't have as much energy as I used to. Um, brain fog is very common. As a matter of fact, uh, there's a group of doctors working in SIRS who have actually validated a symptom questionnaire of clustering. For instance, um, we consider a cluster if you have a, a delayed learning speed, frequent headaches, aching, uh, those are a cluster of symptoms. If you have two out of three, then you have one cluster. And the clustering is different for every patient in SIRS. Once we turn down our metabolism, then it becomes a, gee, what else is going on from everything else? Like if you're zinc deficient, you may have one set of symptoms. If you're zinc and iodine deficient, you may have a different set of symptoms. Um, if you have genetics that make it so that you have a very large hepcidin response when you're exposed to iron, you'll have a different set of symptoms than if you genetically have a mild hepcidin response uh, when presented with iron. So it, it, the, one of the things that's made it very hard to pin SIRS down is the symptoms are actually different in every person. But there are patterns of symptoms which are consistent in people with SIRS. For instance, thirst is one of them that uh, we'll see some, many of them, I'd say probably 75% of them notice an increase in thirst, but uh, not all of them do. And so it's this, it's okay, well, if I see thirst and I see migraines and I see aching, this is kind of how you have to organize this. The, the people who came up with the symptom questionnaire are frankly brilliant in my opinion, uh, because they validated it beautifully. But the, the SIRS people tend to be the sickest of the sick. Uh, so fibromyalgia is a common presentation of it. Um, chronic migraine, uh, just about any chronic disease you can think of can be generated by SIRS. What you typically see in SIRS is multiple chronic diseases. Um, but I would say psychiatric, and when you, when you start turning down metabolism, cells that have the fastest metabolism usually take the biggest hit. And I think people need to realize that nerve cells and immune system cells, once they've been activated, probably are the most metabolically active tissue in the body. So we see a lot of immune system diseases. We see a lot of neurologic and psychiatric diseases in people with SIRS. Hmm. Um, that, those are I pretty much, if you walk into my office and say, I'm a young person who developed a psychiatric disease young, uh, you're going to get a SIRS workup because I've probably been the 50% chance you're going to have SIRS already. Is that right? Uh, okay. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, so then you mentioned the uh, application of the VIP for these patients, but you also mentioned you have to get the inflammation under control before you give it or else it won't have the impact that it otherwise would. Can you talk to us about what you do to get the inflammation under control so that the patient is ready for the VIP? So the way I explain it to my patients, there are six things that cause inflammation that are unique in all human beings. There are three minor inflamers. Those are alcohol overuse, exercise deficiency, and sleep dysregulation. 
So I tell them, you know, look, you're not going to be able to get away by being a night owl all night long or working third shift. We're not going to be able to make this work while you do that. But then there are, are three very big inflamers. And these pretty much, I tell people, I'm not going to be able to fix it if you don't take care of these three. Um, and those are nutritional deficiency. So usually I find nearly everybody is low on zinc, selenium, iron, and iodine, and those have to be repleted in a particular order, um, or you'll get things, you can actually hurt people. Hmm. Um, and then of course, vitamin D, which I encourage everybody to recognize is not a vitamin and it's not really a nutritional issue. It's a hormone that your skin's supposed to make, but can't make anymore because we don't run around the equator naked. Um, <laughs> and so those are things you have to do on the nutritional efficiency side. Then there's nutritional excess. And I tell people there are limits to the amount of fat, fructose, and gluten that you can make in your diet. And if you're going to eat a diet which is high in any one of those three, it will generate inflammation enough that I'm probably going to have a hard time getting you through to the last stage of VIP. And then you have to remove all their biotoxin exposures. So if they have bad root canal teeth, if they live in moldy buildings, um, if they have Lyme disease, all of these things have to be taken care of. Um, I tell my people who have infectious processes, uh, like Lyme, until I fix the nutritional deficiency, I'm probably not going to have you be able to respond to Lyme because um, your immune system needs some of that stuff to fight wars. And if it doesn't have them, it won't fight Lyme and we won't win. But even after you have the primary inflamers removed, you have to remember that these people in SIRS are hyperinflammable. The level of things that don't make the rest of us make inflammatory cytokines make these guys pump out inflammatory cytokines. And because the inflammation process has always got a, an ongoing fight between the generation of inflammation and the resolution of inflammation. And I think it's important for people to realize there is a difference between the biochemistry of making you get inflamed and the biochemistry of resolving inflammation. Um, health is not the absence of inflammation. The inflammatory process has to be actively turned off. All right, you can't just remove the stimulus and it'll go away. That's not how things are organized. And so many times we have to do things for people to help them with that turning off the process. Towards that end, probably the most effective agent we have is this stuff called resolvins, or I should say more accurately, resolvin precursors. Um, so that people know how the, the normal healing process goes, tissue gets injured, it makes inflammatory cytokines. Um, the body removes the primary stimulus of the inflammation. So if you got punched in the nose, I, I quit hitting you. Um, the mechanisms for healing are triggered. They resolve the injured tissue. And then as they do that, they generate these things called resolvins. And resolvins are what tells the body, okay, the process is fixed. You can all come out of cell danger response now and go back to normal metabolism. But the ability to make these resolvins, um, we think mostly because of MSH becomes compromised. While I have some experience giving people MSH and it does appear to make a difference, right now I don't think we know the ideal dose of MSH for people in SIRS. Um, and so it's much more experimental as to how to use MSH, but we have much more data on resolvents or I have to say resolvent precursors. Um, the enzymes that your body uses to make resolvents um, become downregulated in people in SIRS. So they're not very good at making these things. So once the, you know, if you punch them in the nose, that thing won't go away forever. That, that'll be forever trying to heal. Well, you can give them resolvents and it'll, this process will start to turn around. Um, I can even tell you from personal experience, I saw a swollen knee in my own right knee 
uh, I think it was seven days into treatment, the swelling reduced by about 75% taking resolvents. Hmm. Um, the less inflamed you are when I give you the resolvents, the better response you get. But resolvents have a great ability to get people ready for VIP. In fact, I, I kind of use them routinely in people after I've gotten nutritional deficiency taken care of. They seem to work better in people that I've taken care of nutritional deficiency. Um, as a matter of fact, I'm thinking of a case right now of a gentleman that I gave resolvents to, and it took a month for him to get much benefit. And then I found out he was terribly iron deficient. In the meantime, he got frustrated and stopped the resolvents, got his iron deficiency treated. And he said, well, I think I'll try them again. And, and this time it was like two days into the mm. resolvents that oh, wow. <laughs> his gastrointestinal systems almost completely resolved. Um, so while I don't know a lot about SIRS, which is why I'm having you on, uh, the podcast today so that you could teach me and our audience. I do know a little bit about resolvents or otherwise known as SPMs, uh, specialized pro-resolving mediators. And so let me just chime in here and say that the body makes resolvents or SPMs on its own, but as we age, and it may be because of the MSH, as you indicated, as we age, the body has less and less of an ability to make these resolvents or SPMs. And so therefore inflammation, and I usually explain it to clients this way, SPMs or resolvents, they don't block or hinder inflammation. They resolve it like the term resolvent would indicate. So the thing that these resolvents do then is they tell our bodies, just like you indicated a moment ago, they tell the body, okay, the tissue damage is repaired. Uh, we don't need this inflammation anymore. So shut it down. And then it begins to repair the, the, the tissue and complete that process. And so without these SPMs or resolvents, inflammation would just go on and on and on and on and never stop. In and fact, that, that's a, one of the things you see a lot of people like um, Dr. Uh, Bredesen and uh, Dr. Navio speak about is when we talk about inflammation, we have to talk about it in view of the healing cycle. So when you have a tissue that's normal and healthy, and then it, it incurs some kind of an insult, uh, this process of cell danger response goes on, inflammatory cytokines get released, but they are the first step in the healing cycle that leads to the repair and uh, resolution of the issue, and then turning off the healing and going back to normal, which is the resolvents are that piece of that step. Yeah. They are the part that says, look, we have the problem taken care of. We're on the healing state. The, the closer and closer we get back to the healed state, the more and more resolvents we make. And they turn off the generation of the inflammatory cytokines. So we tend to view inflammation as a bad thing. It's not. It's necessary right. for healing. Um, we tend to view that stopping inflammation is a good thing. And I tell somebody, no, what you stop is the thing that made the inflammation go on. All right, you stop the primary stimuli, but you need the inflammation for healing to occur. But at some point, we have to turn off that inflammatory cytokine. That's what resolvents do. And especially in people in SIRS. In fact, I, I, I don't know of another disease that does this except for SIRS. That ability to make resolvents and stop the inflammatory process is what becomes compromised. Mm -hmm. um, and so sometimes we have to jury rig our way around that. So almost nobody needs resolvents forever. All right. Mm -hmm. uh, but resolvents are kind of like an antibiotic for the healing process. Mm -hmm. uh, they are what turns off this thing, the jury rig that you have to do for a while until you can get the process under control. Okay. Um, 
which is, you know, resolvents are interesting. If somebody's got a really bad case of Lyme, resolvents actually aren't a good thing to give them because I've seen it where it actually turns off a healing cycle when we needed it not to be off yet because we're oh. still fighting the bug. Okay. But once you have this further under control, now you've got somebody who responds very well to resolvents. Um, but understanding that inflammation is not a bad thing and that removing inflammation is not the same as healing. Uh, that's a key concept people need to understand that, right. in fact, uh, what many people don't understand, if we already looked at the things that stop inflammation, like ibuprofen and the anti-inflammatories, and people don't know that if we actually give these to a dog who's got arthritis, he may have his pain go away, but his joints degenerate faster. Faster, right. So I tell us, we can't, you cannot equate inflammation with being a bad thing. Turning off inflammation is not the same as healing. Correct. Um, healing requires the making of resolvents. Yeah. Um, so on that note, then the way that I explain it to people, especially in uh, acute injury types of situations, is that, is that you know you have the neutrophils uh, that kick in first that cause you know and the cytokines that cause all of the different inflammatory reactions that you have that cause the pain and the swelling. Then you have the macrophages that come come along and begin to uh, you know gobble up some of the tissue debris, et cetera. And uh, then the SPMs or the resolvents come in after that to tell the body, okay, mission accomplished. We got to shut down the process now. And again, without those resolvents, well, this inflammatory process just goes on and on. And that's why as people age, they have more conditions of an inflammatory nature as they make less and less of these SPMs. But the good news is we can give these things in supplement form and they're actually fractionated from fish oil. Now, let me make a related point here because I've heard people suggest, well, just take enough fish oil oh, and, yeah. and, you, and you, can, you can get enough resolvents. Uh, no, you won't. <laughs> no, you won't. Explain um, why. Well, people need to know that inflammatory cytokines and resolvents are both made from the uh, omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acids. It's how you metabolize the omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acids, whether you make them into inflammatory cytokines or make them into resolvents. But the enzyme systems that have to do this metabolism um, are the things that get compromised, especially in people with SIRS. Well, if, if I've shut down the enzymes that allow you to make omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acids into resolvents, I can load you with omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acids till the cows come home, you still won't make resolvents. Yeah. Um, and so the idea that you can just give somebody enough fish oil uh, to make them make resolvents, there may be some cases where you can do that. But we also need to, people need to know that when you try and do that, there's a downside to this. Um, in fact, there have been studies done with high doses of uh, omega-3 fatty acids that they show a lot of good stuff, but they show some bad stuff as well. So like hormone receptors won't work normally. You can make their cell membrane so fluid that it doesn't serve as a very good barrier anymore. Hmm. Um, yeah, the, the, while we've seen good things from some situations using high dose fish oil, um, like any other agent that's used at a dose much higher than the body intended it to be used, there are side effects from it, all right? Hmm. Um, and so, and, and I would also mention, I don't think it works very well. I've seen people do high dose fish oil. I've never seen anybody do high dose fish oil and have a swollen red knee get 75% better. All right. right. Exactly. But I've seen resolvents do that. So and biochemically, we can explain why that's true. So on that note, one of my colleagues from Illinois a few years ago had a wisdom tooth removed, wisdom teeth. 
and he was bound and determined not to take any uh, pain medication after that operation. And so he had some SPMs on hand that he took six of uh, as he went to bed that night, but had the medication on the counter ready to take the pain medication if he needed it. His wife, he says, thought he was crazy for trying this and predicted he would be up in the middle of the night in severe pain and would have to take the medication. Well, that didn't happen. And uh, to your point, I don't know anybody that has tried high dose fish oil in a situation like that where teeth have been removed and not had to take pain medication and relied on the SPMs instead and had that kind of a positive response. As a matter of fact, I'll go a step further and mention that in the research, the, the turnover or the, the conversion of EPA and DHA into these resolvents, best case scenario is about 3% conversion. Yeah. Um, so the very healthiest patient is going to have at best a, a conversion of about 3%. So, and the healthiest patient, that's not the kind of people that walk through your door day in and day out. Right. Well, and I, I think it's important to realize if I take away, if I completely turn off the enzymes that turn fi uh, fish oil into resolvents, I could give you enough fish oil that you turn into a liquid and you won't make resolvents. And, and because those enzyme systems can become down-regulated, um, in SERS people, they frequently get very far down regulated. I can get those enzymes turned down far enough that there's no way I can give you enough fish oil to possibly make uh, enough resolvents. You, you may go from 3% to 0.3%. Mm, wow. You know, now we're talking about I'm having to give you 10 times as much you know, fish oil uh, to get you to make any resolvents at all. And I tell somebody, if, if that's the case, you're going to get a toxic effect from that much fish oil. Right. Um, the, the, you, when people talk about, uh, for instance, of the cholesterol medicine now being uh, promoted, which is pure EPA, and the dose that has this wonderful effect is four grams a day. Well, I tell somebody that the amount of fish you would have to eat to get four grams of EPA a day, um, I think I calculated that one time to be like, you'd have to eat three salmon. I mean, yeah. snout to tail, three salmon. <laughs> this is not something physiologic. I mean, so you're going to start doing some off-treatment effects if you try and get resolvents made by using straight fish oil. In fact, in the resolvent products that are on the market right now, they are all what we call resolvent precursors. Uh, they are like the last step in the, in the chain of making a resolvent mm -hmm. um, because we think it's the earlier enzymes that are getting down-regulated. And so when we give people those, they probably very rapidly get made to the final resolvent. Um, but I tell somebody there's no way to achieve that with fish oil because the earlier steps just wouldn't allow it to get made. Right. Um, and I can give, I can kill a human being with enough fish oil. <laughs> it's, uh, you can do that with water. Yeah. I mean, it's, you're not designed to have four grams of EPA a day coming into the body. That's not physiologic. Well, and uh, just so the listeners know, there is a fractionation process that uh, actually was uh, pioneered by Dr. Charles Surhan from Harvard. And, Dr. Sirhan is the, uh, the one, he and his team from Harvard are uh, the ones that pioneered this research over about a 20-year span on uh, the SPMs, the resolvents. And interestingly enough, um, upon his first presentation and unveiling of that research, uh, he sold the information to a drug company and they promptly buried it because they could not figure out how to make a drug out of it. And so they just basically buried it. Well, Dr. Sirhan went back to the drawing board and over the period of the last few years has come out with a whole new body of evidence 
on the resolvins, the SPMs. And now there are supplements that are designed from a fractionation process from fish oil, but it's not a fish oil product per se, but it's a high dose resolvins fractionated from fish oil so that you can take them in, in high amounts and get that therapeutic impact that you're looking for. Yeah. The idea of getting these things purified out from fish oil was a brilliant idea. Uh, it takes a lot of fish oil, by the way, there's so little resolvins in fish oil. It yeah. takes a lot of fish oil uh, to get uh, enough resolvents to actually make a difference. In fact, there's even a group of us who believe that when people do get relief from fish oil, it's not actually the EPA which is making them better. It is that there are, they have just a very small resolvent deficit and there's just enough resolvents in that high dose of fish oil that it's what's making them get well. Hmm. Um, I, I have, that's my personal belief that it probably has nothing to do with, gee, I give you tons of EPA and you use that to make resolvents. It's that if I give you a preparation um, of fish oil, it may have just enough resolvents. If you have just a small deficit, I can make it work. One of the reasons I say, say that is this pure EPA um, uh, medicine that's been developed for uh, cholesterol transport uh, things doesn't seem to relieve pain, uh, whereas resolvents do. And so I tell people, I kind of doubt that it's the, that you can just get any form of fish oil. Um, and the more you process it and uh, to get the EPA, because, you know, if you process it, so you've got lots of EPA and lots of DHA, you're processing out the other stuff. Well, that other stuff is probably where the small amount of resolvents is at. Yeah. And now you're down to something which has got a lot of DHA and EPA. That'll help with nutritional deficiency problems, but it probably doesn't help with resolvent deficiency at all. And see, this whole concept of resolvins or SPMs is a whole new way to think about inflammation anyway, because typically in the past anyway, and this is changing, but in the past we have thought of inflammation as a bad thing that needed to be stopped. And as you've already indicated, we have to have some inflammation. We've, I mean, it's a natural process that our body uses in the healing process. So the, the concept is emerging to not necessarily stop the inflammation, but to aid it in going through the whole process of resolving and then shutting down naturally. And so that's the whole concept behind these SPMs. So we can use SPMs, not just for SIRS, but anything that has an inflammatory component, autoimmune disease like um, rheumatoid arthritis, um, for uh, even degenerative arthritis of the osteo sort. Uh, you mentioned fibromyalgia. We know there's research with uh, dry eyes, with cardiovascular issues. Uh, there's research even with IBS. So basically anything, oh, I should say atopic disorders as well, like psoriasis, et cetera, uh, eczema. There's been some good research on that with SPM. So basically anything that has an inflammatory component, SPMs can help with. But back to the SIRS picture, would you say that all these things that I just mentioned, even something like IBS or ulcerative colitis, could that be a SIRS kind of patient as well? well? Absolutely. Think of any chronic disease because SIRS is primarily an easily inflamed state. Think of anything you can do that causes inflammation and you will upregulate the chance of having that once the hypothalamus of the brain is contributing to the problem as well. So if you see a person who has fibromyalgia but doesn't have fatigue, they probably don't have SIRS, but you see those very rarely. Right. When you see somebody has fibromyalgia and IBS and eczema and fatigue, you're probably looking at a SIRS patient. Um, it's, I don't want people to get the idea that resolvins are only for SIRS people because that's not true. 
There are a lot of things I can do that will make it so that you can't make resolvents. Certain nutritional deficiencies, uh, for instance, if you, if you have a diet that's low in EPA and DHA, you probably won't be able to make adequate amounts of resolvents. Um, I can make that get better faster with resolvents, all right? Um, it, it, when, what, what, in fact, if you're gonna go, now you're gonna just invoke my biochemistry geek. <laughs> we, have, we have pretty good data that says that the enzymes that make inflammatory cytokines those enzymes become down-regulated when we give you resolvents. So the way your body actually tells the cells, quit making those inflammatory cytokines, we've got things fixed, is the resolvents actually turn down the enzymes that make inflammatory cytokines. So whatever you're doing that makes you make too many inflammatory cytokines, I can always reduce the amount that you're making with resolvents. The only question is, are you at a spot in the healing cycle where that's a good thing to do? So if you have a ton of Lyme on board, it's probably not a good thing to do. But on the other hand, if the reason you're sick is because I, you know, I have five alcoholic beverages a day, I tell them, well, okay, you know, I can probably intervene there with a resolvent and get some of that inflammatory uh, mischief taken care of. Um, I can, resolvents probably help people who get their inflammation from eating terrible food, all right? Okay. I can downregulate the damage being done. I can't probably stop it, but I can make you have less damage from going to McDonald's every day if I give you resolvents. Okay, so resolvents can actually act as a Band-Aid for bad habits if they're, they're not in a full-blown disease state. Is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, in fact, if somebody tells me, you know, gee, which would you rather use as your anti-inflammatory, ibuprofen um, or resolvents, I tell them, well, for most cases, it's gonna be resolvents. Um, because if I've removed the, or have, have gotten as little of the primary inflammatory stimulus removed as I can, the better way to turn down the baking of inflammatory cytokines is actually with resolvents. Resolvents will allow you to still have the healing process. Yeah. Um, we already know that ibuprofen stops the healing process. In yeah. fact, if you go to the people who use stem cell therapy, they'll tell you if you're on an anti-inflammatory, the stem cell therapy just goes to a complete halt. Mm. Um, They'll, they'll tell you, don't even, one Advil a day will stop stem cell therapy from working right. Wow. Uh, so, yeah. And so if you ask me, I, but I, if you ask me, do I think resolvents would do that? I'd say, no, resolvents probably don't interfere with stem cell therapy. I don't do stem cell therapy, so I can't tell people for sure, but I would tell somebody, I, I wouldn't doubt at all that you could use resolvents safely to relieve discomforts in somebody that you can't do with naproxen and ibuprofen. Right. Well, I would think, and I don't know this either about stem cell therapy because I haven't studied it out, but I would imagine that um, SPMs or resolvents actually would aid in that kind of therapy, knowing what I know about their ability to uh, not only downregulate the inflammatory cytokines and what have you, but to bring it to a resolved state so that the inflammation is taken all the way through the process so that it's no longer needed and shut down. Um, now, regarding the anti-inflammatories, I heard this recently, um, and I think uh, in a conference that I attended or a discussion that I was in, I don't remember where I heard this. I didn't read it, but I'll ask you to confirm it. Don't these non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs also downregulate or inhibit our bodies in making glutathione? You know, I don't know the answer on the glutathione, although I, I would not be surprised by that at all. Um, when, when a cell goes into cell danger response, um, it actually uh, tries to turn off its mitochondria, which is where it makes most of its energy from. 
the, uh, the oxidative stress that we get from many different things is tightly tied to inflammation. Um, and I could easily see that they would probably do that, um, probably because when you're not running your mitochondria, you don't need as much glutathione. Mm. Um, and uh, so I could easily see where they would do that. I, I think people need to understand that when you look at the, the, the metabolic pathway for making uh, the uh, inflammatory cytokines versus the resolvents, that pathway is actually used to make other things as well. And the anti-inflammatory agents all act by stopping that pathway. Um, well, because that pathway is central to the healing process, they're going to they're gonna have lots of off-target effects. And I, it's just hard for me to, to tell somebody, I think anti-inflammatories, I mean, maybe if you got a headache one day and you, know, you took them one month, that probably these are a good idea. But if somebody says, what about my taking two or three weeks of anti-inflammatories um, after I got an injury to make it heal? I would say, well, we've got data on that. And the anti-inflammatories actually make your sprained ankle heal slower. Yes. <laughs> so um, it's just hard for me to get into these using these anti-inflammatories as anything but a one-off today. We're going to do them and we're not going to do them again for another two or three weeks. Um, the metabolic mischief probably extends far beyond just glutathione generation. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and to that point, I do know that one of the leading causes of death is the GI bleeding that occurs from the chronic use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. As a matter of fact, that is the 15th leading cause of death in the U.S. is the GI bleeds and the ulcerations that come from chronic use of these NSAIDs. So, and if, you know, I'll even tell people this plays right back to the importance of resolvents because I actually have patients who have bad heartburn and bad uh, irritable bowel syndrome stuff. Um, including the stuff that leads to ulcers that we give resolvents to, to make those symptoms stop. Okay. Um, now, this I didn't know. So please elaborate on this. So you're talking about acid reflux. Yeah. I, in fact, one of the, the cases I was telling about with the gentleman who um, had the poor response to resolvents at first before his Lyme was treated, then had the great response afterwards. The great response he had was the man had terrible irritable bowel syndrome and reflux disease symptoms. And it was like 48 hours back on the resolvents when that stopped. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's, you, people need to come to understand that, you know, one of the ways to turn off inflammation isn't just to turn off the making of the inflammatory cytokines from this gross way that um, they're in, in fact, because of the way anti-inflammatories work, they also turn off the making of resolvents. Hmm. That's an important thing to note. When you give somebody ibuprofen, they're not only going to reduce their making of inflammatory cytokines, but their production of resolvents is going to go tank as well. Yeah. You get into the, well, if we're trying to promote healing, the better way to handle this is actually give them the resolvents. That'll turn down the inflammatory cytokines, but it still lets the healing part go on, which is why it took such a short time for this man to have gastrointestinal relief and actually stop a process that could have led to GI bleeding. Mm. You so, know, on this point, this leads to something that I think needs to be at least mentioned here before we uh, close it down here in a minute or two. But, um, you know, the SPMs also do have a role in COVID. And the reason that I say that is because of its effect on the inflammasome. Now, the inflammasome, as you already know, and some of our audience probably knows about the inflammasomes and some don't perhaps, but inflammasomes are simply proteins that are part of the innate immune response. 
And their role is to create these inflammatory cytokines so that when there's injury or illness, the inflammatory process will help to address that. And then as you described earlier in our conversation, bring us to a place of healing. That's why we need that inflammatory response. But with someone with an imbalanced inflammasome response because of an immune system that may not be quite right because of obesity, because of maybe cardiovascular disease, diabetes would be a big contributor to an imbalanced immune system. A lot of times when those inflammasomes kick in, there's a very exaggerated response. And so therefore the cytokine response downstream is equally exaggerated. So there's a backfiring, if you will, of the inflammasomes and then ultimately the cytokines. And in the case of COVID, that's why you have what we hear about as the cytokine storm. It's the cytokines going out of control. And in some cases with pneumonia, sepsis, COVID, this can literally be a lethal process because of an imbalanced immune system that leads to this backfiring. And SPMs are one of the things that has been shown to cause this um, inflammasome, thus cytokine response to be much more balanced and regulated and controlled so that it doesn't cause the cytokine storm. Can you speak to that? Yeah, as a matter of fact, um, the most effective treatment I've seen in COVID-19 so far is 25-hydroxy vitamin D3. Um, in the study that was done from a hospital in Spain, it was 100% effective on COVID-19 death and hospitalized people, 90% effective at preventing the progression to ICU admission. But it, this also speaks to the resolvent issue because vitamin D seems to control the genes that determine the making of the enzymes that lead to resolvent production. Mm. Therefore, you mm. can think of vitamin D deficiency as a state where I can't, as another reason besides SIRS, that I can't make adequate resolvents. Um, while vitamin D seems to work very well on getting somebody treated for COVID-19, I can tell you the only people, I have a lot of people, my, everybody in my practice is on big doses of vitamin D. They all have levels greater than 55. But I've still seen people in my practice who had levels in the 70s for vitamin D who had short periods of symptoms for COVID-19. All of them SIRS patients. Hmm. All of my other people who didn't have SIRS and had good vitamin D levels were totally asymptomatic when they were infected which speaks to the idea that there is a level of resolve and response that you can't fix just by getting the vitamin D level normal. This is probably where the SIRS kicks in. So if I had a SIRS patient who came in and had COVID-19 despite a vitamin D level of 55, if you ask me what's the first thing I would give them, be resolvents. Hmm. <laughs> that's, you know, that's the missing piece of why you're overreacting to this virus. Yep. Um, is it, and people should know that about COVID-19. The virus is, I tell people, COVID-19 virus has something to do with infection. It has nothing to do with disease. It is normal for us to be infected with respiratory pathogen viruses. We're designed for that. We handle it very well. 70% of people who get the infection with COVID-19 never have symptoms. Um, the disease is caused by immune system dysregulation. Yep. Part of that's vitamin D, but especially in the case of SIRS patients, part of that is this dysregulated ability to make uh, resolvents even in the face of a uh, vitamin D that's normal. Hmm. Um, this is fascinating stuff. Every time I talk to you, I learn multiple new things. And so it's always a delight to talk to you. And, and uh, thanks for your time today. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk to us 
And uh, I know this is going to be well appreciated by your colleagues and other healthcare practitioners that will be listening in. So thanks again for your time. Is there anything else that you might want to say to, to wrap this up in a pretty bow regarding the SIRS? Just that there's a there's very few doctors who understand the pathophysiology of SIRS. There's a, I think there, there's not a lot of people who even know the term. Um, find somebody who, I, they'll be able to find a geek. Um, <laughs> You know, because the, the doctors who are doing this and recognize the pathophysiology of it, the, the precursors of half, how you have to make it work. And uh, there's a lot of doctors because they don't understand the pathophysiology. They don't understand that it's got curative potential. Mm -hmm. um, as, as a matter of fact, I, whenever I hear somebody talk about aging as a process, I tell them, I, I really hope to make that term go away. Um, think about this. When a, when a doctor says it's your age, what he means is I don't understand the biochemistry that's generated your symptoms and I'm not going to go find out. <laughs> uh, time passed is a pretty superficial info, uh, explanation for biochemistry. Um, but at the root of most of these people that we have aging diseases, uh, I say with quotation marks, are probably people who've finally been thrown into SIRS. Um, and if we get them soon enough in this before they've lost tons of tissue to SIRS, um, we can probably actually reverse this aging with this. Hmm. Um, I can even tell you, I've seen this in my own case when people say, well, you know, uh, a good example, um, before I was able to start the VIP part of my treatment regimen earlier this summer, I had several injuries that occurred to my skin that took six to eight weeks to heal. Um, a similar injury that I occurred in early January uh, actually healed in two and a half weeks on VIP. So when people talk about as we get older, we don't heal as well. It's like, well, I think what you mean is you get sick and develop SIRS, <laughs> you mm. don't heal as well. And that's reversible. Mm. Uh, that, you know, the degree that we can get you reversed, I think depends on how soon into it we get you, but it's reversible. Um, and I, I really hate to have people look at chronic disease and disability through the lens if they don't understand SIRS then aging is the explanation you're left with. Yeah. But when you understand SIRS, aging probably no longer is a very thorough explanation. That's fascinating. And find somebody who understands that pathophysiology. Well, in Indiana, you are that person uh, because I call on probably 180 doctors. You are the only one talking about this. You're the only one that knows about it. I haven't heard anyone else talk about this. Not, that's not to say that that uh, there's not other doctors that know about this or are talking about it or maybe even addressing it in their practice. I just haven't met them. I haven't heard anybody else talk about this other than you in Indiana anyway. Uh, so uh, you are kind of Indiana's resident expert on SIRS. So that's why you're on my podcast today. Uh, so thanks again for being willing to share your expertise and uh, hopefully we'll have you back at a different time uh, because you're just such a wealth of knowledge. It's a shame for the world not to be exposed to it. Well, I appreciate that, Andy. It's very, very kind. Um, well, I think anybody who calls himself an expert is an egotistical idiot. It's a great compliment to have somebody else call you an expert. <laughs> <laughs> well, I definitely uh, consider you that. So thanks again. And I'm going to go ahead and sign off for now, but uh, really appreciate you taking the time out for us today. I know you're a busy doctor and you're very gracious with your time.